1: This is our prime suspect, Jason Derrick Brown. Tough to say where he might be headed at this point. I love you. We should see what kind of trail this guy leaves us pretty soon. just not the Jason I know. He's a con man, Melanie. Plain and simple. I need to speak with Jason. My brother is (laughs) dead. Kid quadruple. Idiot! I know you know Jason, and I know he's been here recently. got a little opportunity. (gasps) 80 grand, three days. I'm going to rob an armored truck, and I want you to help me. That's above your pay grade. Is that a no mommy? (laughs) You're never going to find him. You sure about that? I'm sure you'll figure something out. Is there any part of that brain of yours that could just tell you to stop? Bitch! He won't get away with this. One man against a loaded gun. Tell me, where is your brother? And do not lie to me. Did you kill that man? I always tell you the truth. Do you know that? Deadly. Deadly. Good answer.
0: Hello and welcome to the Matts Movie Reviews podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 498. Releasing in Australia on digital this February 8th is American Murderer. A true crime story about charismatic con man and murderer, Jason Derrick Brown, whose cycle of greed and violence led him to be placed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. A riveting true crime story starring an all-star cast, including Tom Felfry, Ryan Thleep, and Jackie Weaver. American murderer also marks a feature film directorial debut of Matthew Gentile. I'm glad to say he joins me now on the podcast. Matthew, how are you today?
1: I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Absolutely. You know,
0: it's such an interesting story, this this American murderer. And, you know, I was just doing a lot of research, just listening to a bunch of your interviews, and just some really interesting how kind of like this idea to make this story, um, you know, of Jason Derrick Brown, your first kind of feature, you know, directorial film. And, And it goes back all the way back to when you were like 14 years old, right? I mean, back then, before you wanted to be a filmmaker, you wanted to be an FBI agent. And uh, I think you were, um, I, I'm not sure, I don't remember where you were, maybe at a post office or so, but maybe um, or saw or an online where you saw the top 10 most wanted list. And on that, you know, wanted list, you have names like Walt, Whitey Bulger and Osama Bin Laden at the time. Both of them either captured or caught since then, of course. But one person who hasn't is Jason Derrick Brown. He's someone that really stood out for you. What was it about him that really stood out for you as compared to the other people uh, in that list? Because, uh, For some people, Jason Derrick Grant isn't really a well known name, but uh, probably after this film, maybe more people will know about him uh, just like like you have over the last uh, decade or so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. And yeah, no, it's even longer than a decade. Um, I first learned about the case when I was 14, and, you know, because that's when it happened um, in 2004. And, you know, the reason his face stood out, I think. You know, and and I think what made it kind of go into my subconscious is, you know, like for me, cinema film is all about the image, right? And the image of Jason's mugshot was kind of like a perfect, almost Kubrickian image. You have a, a man with like a chiseled face, spiky blonde hair, a bright red hoodie, and a blue wall behind him. And what's interesting about that photograph that became his mugshot is that's the photograph which we recreate in the film. It was taken three weeks before the the murder he committed that put him on the top. And he was just posing at the gun shop to buy the gun that he would commit this crime with. And all you see on his face is just a tight little smirk. And that's it. And I had a teacher who used to always say there's no better director than God. (laughs) because They put these things together in a way that you can just see it, you know, like, I remember he always told the story of Richard Nixon leaving the White House and the day he flashed the peace sign. Mm. And it was like a rain, it was a sunny day. It was beautiful. And like, here he was at the lowest point in his life. and Right. He flashes that peace sign. And that's the image. Right. And the, that, you know, the subtext is captured. So with this image specifically of Jason Derrick Brown, it just, here's this spiky haired man and the surfer dude, this tight grin, this, you know, but this image just struck me um, and the crime was fascinating. You know, it was, uh, you know, a, a caper, you know, a, a a armored truck heist, which, you know, there's been a lot of movies about armored truck heists and bank robberies and all that. And it's, it fascinates us and they're committed so often. And I'm writing a thing now about a bank robber, which is on brand. And, you know, I'm like researching like how often a bank robbery happens in, the, in America. I don't know the stats for the world, but it's, it apparently happens like every hour. So, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's a real, it's a thing. And that, the thing that happens in our culture. And so I was really fascinated by that, but, you know, I didn't think about Jason for a long time. Um, And then I was thinking about what my first feature be. And I saw he was still missing and that initially grabbed me, but what ultimately made this become a story that I felt I had to tell was seeing the web Of Jason Derek Brown, the people he loved, the people who knew him, his family, um, his friends, ex-girlfriends, just kind of seeing the impressions he left and the memories we, you know, we were kind of left with, and that became a way of sort of structuring the narrative. Was these vignettes, these photographs, these videos he made, these images, these traces that are kind of left of this guy who, in the movie, we're kind of talking about, like he's a ghost. You know, Mm. he's dead here, but and maybe he is, but you know or maybe he is still out there it, it, you know we never really got that answer so you know how do we reconcile this person who meant so many different things to so many different people so that really was kind of the you know the core of it was this person who obviously was quite rotten and you know didn't have malintent but um was also incredibly charming and uh could have and had different sides to him so i was just really interested in exploring that and that's you know the kinds of films I grew up loving and want and that inspired me were films like, you know, Vengeance is mine, uh, Shohi film with Ken Ogata, and you know, films like Dog Day Afternoon, um, you know, with Al Pacino or even, you know, Citizen Kane, like, you know, where you just you're really studying people and their psychologies and why they are the way they are. And they're not necessarily likable or lovable, but you know, they're interesting. They're compelling. And that's you know, so that was kind of the thing that I think draw, drew me in
0: um, yeah when you decide to take on his you know the story of his crimes and those that are affected as, as like the basis of your feature film I'm sure you've done a lot of research on, to, on in him in Jason Derek Brown and I also wanted to ask him about some type of observations you would have had from the, that research that would have maybe not would have framed your, your story that you had um One of them is like from what I understand of, of him his background, or at least he had um, time in the in the Mormon Church, and I don't know whether that had yeah. anything to do with this next question, which is he had this kind of disillusioned idea of what success looked like, um, with the, the the look that you talked about, with how he's kind of framed and such, and in the body he seemed like a, per- a guy who really kept himself in in good shape, and not but not only that, but like the the image of of wealth, um, the boats, the cars. Um, you know, the the clothes, everything like that. Uh, do you think that came from his impression of what a well-off person uh, was? Or do you think that was just a way for him to kind of him showing an image of this kind of exuberant success was a really good lubricant for him to kind of like kind of go in these kind of different areas of life? And um, especially like uh, suburban life, which I think he really kind of tapped into quite a bit, um, and really just it was a really easy way for him to kind of like sliver his way in there and trying to gain the trust of a lot of these people, because you know for some reason people think, well, if this guy is uh, is well off, then he must be a guy who knows what he's talking about, right? Right. Yeah,
1: it's a great question. I mean, I think the answer is both. You know, um, I mean, certainly there is something in American culture i mean i think it's broad too um you know but in american culture there is something about you know this idea of the american dream you know what it means to have it all to flaunt it all you know and it's interesting to me because the movie is set in 2004 yeah um, at a time before social that predates social media um and predates posting things about your life but interestingly enough jason derrick brown was doing that before it was a thing you know he was like he was like an influencer he reminds me of those and he reminds me of a youtuber you know someone who would film you know because the boat we recreate um, a party he threw of himself on a boat which he filmed holding the camera up to his face the whole time and you know people like some people were doing that but not a lot you know so he was he was definitely and i think he was he was onto something um you know certainly um but yeah you know i mean look the movie to me has always been an examination of that dark side of the american tree um yeah and looking at that and holding a, a mirror up to that, you know, because they're, you know, I love America. I'm proud to be an American for sure. Um, but you know, there is something in our culture specifically that I've observed, you know, and certainly like when I look at I've had a lot of people say to me after seeing this film, everybody knows a Jason. Hmm. Which is, you know, a little horrifying to think, but you know, there's some truth to it in that, you know, there is a type. I've had people say, Oh my God, Jason reminds me of a guy I knew on Wall Street or Jason. Uh, You know, reminds me of like 10 guys I went to college with, you know, there's that type. And there's certainly this thing of, you know, American dream, go out, get it, have it all, show success, show wealth, like, you know, and the thing about social media, too, it's like, you know, people don't often, some people do, but most people don't post when they're having a bad day. And I I can attest to this. I mean, you know, I just posted about my movie doing well internationally, you know, because that's what we do. We put, you know, it's an image that you're kind of told to put of yourself out there into the world um you know and jason was doing that he was you know putting this image out that he wanted people to see and latch on to and it was a facade and it was fake but a lot of people did fall for it and um you know and it is interesting what you pointed out to your observation about suburbia and how it is like you know like it, it kind of makes it look so tacky in a way like you know, the cadillacs and the, and the boat like because I, you know, I was re-watching wolf of wall street recently it's such a great movie i think um, but, you know, Well Wall Street, like, you, it looks tacky, too, but it's pretty decadent. Like, he's got the yacht and he's got, you know, and, like, when you see it in, like, the context of a suburban neighborhood, it's kind of like, who is this guy? What is he uh. doing? on It's like, it almost kind of looks in bad taste in a way, which I think it was, you know, based on the, a lot of what we did. in, you know, in terms of the house and the boats, like we were recreating images that actually existed, um, you know, as with as much detail as possible um but you know with with some liberties of course but yeah so yeah it's pretty it's pretty crazy but yes i, I agree with your observation for sure and i think it is his way of peacocking and showing what he has and, you know making himself a beetle
0: and um and the other thing I, I i kind of took from her as well just and just to go on that i, I definitely pick you he would be an influencer today he just there's something about the narcissistic kind of nature towards his character to kind of like really speak spoke to that it's like um Especially those scenes in the boats, I could see that as a real on Instagram. You know, like I really could. Um, the other thing I wanted that kind of I took away from it was kind of like this kind of cycle of self destruction that he kind of had. Do you think like when he once he get when he once he had a taste of of that life, um, you know, even though the life was very much a, a mirage and something and he kind of conjured more than earned, that it was just like as just as addictive as any drug. And that would and just like any drug would lead him to to and measures and and not to in any way kind of like um uh have an out for his behavior. But I'd imagine that um taking part in you know that kind of excess, um, the women, um, the the materialism and everything else, that, that's addictive, man. Once you once you get a taste for anything like that. I mean, you just want more and more of it, right?
1: Totally. And that's how uh, Tom Pelfrey plays Jason um um and I talked yeah. about it was we said this, this to us, it's a bit of an addiction movie. Um, and one, <laughs> the funny thing is, so the hardest thing to film by far in the movie was the boat party scene, because we filmed the movie, just to give you some perspective, in Utah in the winter. Oh, <laughs> so, like, you know, Boat party where people are partying and girls are in bikinis, guys are in bathing suits, you know, doing drugs <laughs> and drinking and all that. Um, and, You know, filming this scene in like cold weather was was, on the lake was quite hard. And we didn't know when we would have snow or not. So it was a whole nightmare, but it was so crucial to get it because the video of that boat party kind of represents it's like a metaphor for what he's addicted to a certain lifestyle. Mm. And we had to really make sure we got that. Like, you know, that was one scene that absolutely, and not many scenes did get cut from the script. I think only one officially did. Um, It was a tight shoot and a tight schedule, but we always had to make sure we talked about that scene because that scene is how you kind of track um, Jason Derrick Brown's arc because, you know, he really, you see how he's addicted to that and he's always trying to get back to that, right? And there's also, you know, a sequence in the film with his father who very much influenced him and showed him this kind of way of life. And that's also something he's trying to get back to. So yeah, I think you're absolutely on point in that, in a way, the, the movie is totally an addiction film And he's chasing a certain high that he got. And it's very unhealthy, you know, and and that's kind of how addiction works, right? Once you have one pump, you need another, you know, you can't, one pump doesn't do it. You need two, you need three, and then it kind of builds and builds and builds. And, you know, I certainly think that is Jason Derrick Brown because, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, in terms of excusing his behavior or not, I mean, I don't think anybody, like, we, like, we can't, we know what he did. You know, he shot him in the head five times. I mean, the murder was even more
0: it was an execution you know It was he that was pre that wasn't like you know the gun went off he intended for that to happen
1: yeah he did it and he you know there's no doubt about it i mean sure some people have theories but he did it and you know at least that's how i feel and you know it's it's worth questioning how he got there um, i think worth looking at that's what the movie has been built to do you know is to examine that because i think that's the power of great storytelling you know whether it's film, whether it's literature. You know I read, I read *Crime and Punishment* once a year, and I'm always fascinated by the psychology of Raskolnikov. You know, and, and I think that's what keeps us asking questions. You know about about these kinds of people, what makes them tick. But yes, I think he was driven by greed, addiction. Um, you know, yeah. So
0: I wanted to um talk about
1: uh, the casting of Tom Peltier.
0: Interestingly, before. You shot this feature. You did like a, um, a proof of concept kind of like short film back in 2019. And in the role of Jason in that one was um, Jonathan Groff. So a lot of people know now for Mindhunter. He's got a movie out now in, in Knock on the Cabin as well. Um, you but you did you did the short. Shortly after that, Mindhunter comes out. It kind of blows up. Schedules don't work. Then you have to get someone else for, for the role. And Tom Pelfrey comes into it. I almost didn't recognize him when I was watching, watching the trailer because I'm used to Tom He's kind of really greasy looking, you know, um, in Ozark and in um, uh, Banshee. He's also got that, also usually got that kind of greasy look about him. Sometimes a little bit of scruff. He's got more darker hair. And when I saw him in um, the trailer for American Murderer and when I watched the movie, um, it was just really cool kind of transformation that he kind of had in putting together the, the look for Jason. Uh, so the first thing I want to talk about is in regards to the look, like, when he first sees pictures of Jason and everything else like that, what does he have to do on his part to kind of like achieve that look? I know there's the clean shaven part, but it's also a kind of like, I don't know, not to be any insulting in any way towards uh Tommy or anything, but it's kind of like ultimate kind of douche mode, like the, the look that Jason has. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just kind of like the first kind of thing that will. I think one of the things I wrote down here is um, uh, oh, where was it? Um, yeah, kind of like a almost like a douche costume that had a Halloween. Like, if you're going to do it, you'll look like that. But that's how the guy actually looked. So the external parts of that, what was that like with Tom in trying in getting achieving that kind of look? Was there is a physical kind of thing towards um, Jason that really he used to really kind of like, as we spoke before, kind of sliver his way into different echelons of society and get away with a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, first off, yeah, Tom, you know, is a very detailed actor. So he kind of he's somebody who wants to know everything about everything. He's fit, you know, he, you know, he's not too talky. He really goes and does it, but you know, he really comes prepared. Um man hmm. does his homework. And, you know, we had a lot of meetings where we just talked about the script and talked about scenes, even kind of read some out loud together in like a very easygoing, fun way. Um, and then it was really cool to watch him transform. Um, you know, and and, I mean, the first big thing, of course, is the frosted tips in the hair. That was kind of, like, the first thing. And I know he was a little scared about it being too permanent, so he had to, like, make sure he had the right kind of hair. Um, but, you know, it, it, the hair really did make a change. Like, the, the spiking in the style, and that was
0: kind like of, a almost like a wall of hair kind of thing going on.
1: Yeah, I think he actually had extensions. I could be wrong on that, though. It's not theory I know the most about. But I think he did have extensions to get them right and make sure that they could stand. And Yeah, no, he... he he did a number on his hair and, um, you know, the wardrobe was really crucial. Um, and fortunately in that form, we had a lot to go off of because there's so many pictures of Jason. So we, me and the costume designer and Tom, were all kind of able to bounce ideas and see what, you know, and, and improve upon things or so and There are some looks in the film that are completely stuffy wore. Um, there's like a famous fancy green striped button down. that's like sideways. It's green It's so um, you know, and, and he loved it. I think that, that stuff kind of helped get him into character. Um, Tom is naturally a very physical actor. And that's part of why I was so interested in casting him. You know, the, for my introduction to him was like a lot of people's, it was Ozark. Um, you know, I had known about him. Uh, I'd, I, I should say I'd seen him in a couple Indies and he's actually big in theater in New York too. So I've, I've seen him twice, or twice on Broadway and off Broadway. Um. But, you know, he, he wasn't really on my radar for this until somebody brought it up to me and said, hey, this guy's amazing on Ozark. And I, I watched it and like everyone else, I just was, oh, I was like, who is this guy? And, you know, he had that physical nature that the actor he always, I always say he reminded me the most of was Tushar Mifune, uh, hmm. my favorite actor. Um, and he just had this physicality and Kurosawa had a famous quote about Mifune where he said that Mifune could do in a few feet of film what it took most actors to do in, you know, 20. And I think that there's something like that with Tom. He, he really, like, he can just convey so much. He always surprises you as a director. Like, he just comes in and will do something, like, totally different from your plan, like, and it's awesome. And you're, like, move the camera based on that. Like, I remember we he does a scene where he goes into a nightclub and he just, like, put his hands up on the ceiling. <laughs> I almost had this, like, Candyman-esque pose, but it was great. You know, he just, he was really fearless about playing the role and you needed that in someone with jason you know he wasn't like if you have an actor who's afraid of how they're going to look in that role you know every scene like that's not going to work because you have to, he really was able to get himself to a place where he was just unhinged and uh you know some of the best lines in, in the film i'll say were ad-lib like tom would just come up with brilliant really <laughs> and i feel like that's great i love that you know um like the whole and they use they've used it in all the trailers when he goes is that a no mommy that was a complete like we were just rolling the camera on him and he just went um you know so it was such an interesting shoot because some of it was so pre-planned and measured like everything with the action or like the murder or the swat invasion or anything like that but when it came to like things like you know tom and like you know the drug dealer or tom even in adina um we were kind of like letting the camera roll and like letting him do stuff you know and it was really cool to to see i was kind of joking that we kind of went from like doing almost like um a tight like michael mann (laughs) style film where it's like everything's pre-planned and this and that and then we go and be doing like a hal ashby movie where we're just letting cameras roll letting him you know riff and riff but it was great it was really cool to see and and he just was so dedicated and yeah he worked out like i think he was on a he would. It was COVID when we filmed, like height of it, pre-vaccine uh, COVID. So I think he worked out like for like three hours a day. <laughs> yeah, something. that's the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So he was. Uh, he was. He was in it. The guy was in it and very, very dedicated. And and yeah, I can't can't speak highly enough of him. Um, certainly, as a first time with a leading man in a feature film, I was, I was. He set the bar high.
0: The Matts Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by T Public. Tee Public is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, Tee Public is sure to have something you'll love. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Amazon, the world's leading online store. Amazon is your first stop to buy a wide range of products at competitive prices with fast delivery times. Amazon is also a world-class entertainment hub that includes Prime Video, Audible, Twitch, Amazon Music and more. Sign up with Amazon today and experience the best in online shopping and entertainment. Please support Matt's movie reviews on Patreon. Get access to exclusive content, request movie reviews on top 10 lists and help support my work. Please click on the Patreon link in the description below. I want to talk about the, the women in, in Jason's life as, as portrayed in the film. So on one hand, you had Adina Menzel, who's kind of like this on again, off-again uh partner throughout the film. She thinks Jason is someone else uh, entirely, um portrays himself as like this importer, businessman, you know, really successful kind of kind of guy. Then on the other hand, you have Jason's mum, who's played by the, you know, the legendary Jackie Weaver. Um, and the interactions between the two are really interesting. Um, Adina's character. Of Melanie she really is like smitten by him and she loves the way that you know he gets along with her, her kid and everything and it's interesting seeing her perspective in it because while i'm sure there's a lot of different people who feel under the snare under the under the charms of jason she's like the main kind of like example that's shown throughout the film what do you think it was something to do with, with that character um that she allowed herself to be open to to his charms in that way was it that she was a single mother was it that he was so successful what do you think it was like about him that really kind of like opened up uh her to open up her house to him her family to him and not only that but really put up with his bullshit because he'd he'd disappear for months and then come back and it'll be like you know like oh i forgive you and and let's get back to how we were before
1: yeah, you know, by all accounts, this is what Jason would, would do, you know, to a lot of people in his life. He would kind of be in and out, you know, he'd show up, call him up, be like, hey, I'm back. And, you know, he would kind of just waltz his way in and would always have a story when the truth was pretty different, you know, he's usually hmm. he really needed something, right? And he would kind of code it, you know, in a way, but... You know, with her character, um, you know, I think I, I really enjoyed working with Adina Menzel and, and thought she did a great job at at conveying uh Melanie's vulnerability because you know it was very important. That character is a composite of a couple different people. Um, but it was very important to me and I think to Adina and I think to Tom as well. We talked and rehearsed those scenes, that this wasn't some dumb woman who got taken advantage of. Rather, this was a independent single mother. Successful. Who, successful, working, providing hmm. a good life for her and her son. Um, you know, who gets taken in by this guy's charm. And one thing was very clear to me in the rehearsals when hmm. I was watching it. <laughs> I remember this. I had Tom and Adina on a Zoom. Um, I was down in Utah prepping and we were rehearsing on Zooms, and Tom and Adina are on the Zoom. It's the first time. Hmm. And they do their scene, their first scene, or maybe there's their third scene when he tells her he loves her, and it's, you know, bullshit. Um, I mean, and we'll get back to that later. But he tells her he loves her, and Tom does it, and Adina just is watching him on the Zoom and just goes, oh, wow, that's really convincing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And, you know, it's something, Tom, and, and I think the re- to answer your question, the reason why I think she you know, fell for him why he was able to get hold of wool over her eyes, is really because Jason Derrick Brown, I think, was such a good con artist in a way because he was, you know, an artist. He was able to in a way, convince himself that he loved her in that moment. And so he could be kind of truthful, like an actor, you know, and it was a good performance. And I think that's the thing with everyone involved when you you know, you talk about his sister. Right, who is a sharp, sharp person, and and I don't think Adina wasn't sharp, but you know, his sister definitely was a no bullshit type of person who like kind of could see through things. But she too was, was blinded by him because I mean, how could you not be? It's, it's your brother, and, and he's charming, and he's easygoing, he's fun to be around, he kind of seems harmless, even though he's not. You know, the one person who does see through him completely is of course um, Jackie Weaver's character. She sees right through his BS and. You know for him, like you know, that's the con man's worst nightmare is the person who can see right through them, and in this mm. case, it's smart. so they're yeah. a lot of fun. but, um, yeah, I think you know, Dina's character falls for him and uh, fall and falls in love with him because you know that's what I think love is in a way it's allowing yourself to become vulnerable to someone, and in this case, it can allow someone to hurt you. And she and she unfortunately is a victim of Jason's the mark in, in the con, which is. You know, I think I think it's a pretty heartbreaking story arc. Um, you know, and uh for that reason. But that said, I think he did, you know, make her feel a certain way. And you know, there's an old quote in the Jewish family tradition, which I'm from, which is actually I think it's a lot of people, but people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. Yeah. And you know, I think it would make her feel seen and special and cared for in a time when she wasn't getting that and wasn't able to, and And I think Jason enjoyed kind of being the hero in those moments, you know, like being able to hang out with her son when it was easy and convenient for him. But then the second it gets difficult, he's out the door because that's just who he is. So yeah, I think he's a, you know, she was, unfortunately, she had a very, very good con artist there who knew how to prey on people's emotions to get what he wanted. I don't know if, if you, you know, this
0: or whether Jackie knew this as well, but in the scenes where Jackie is um as, as Jason's mama is confronts him and is the voice of reason and pretty much calls out his bullshit. To me, I think she is that character is very much playing the voice of the audience as well. I mean, when you're watching the film and you're watching, you know, Tom doing what he's doing as Jason, um, you can't help but sometimes just yell out, you know, just wake the fuck up, people. You know, this guy's like a you know full of crap. And she calls him out on that crap. And I think that's some of my favourite scenes in that movie where she really does call him out and he's kind of taken aback by, you know, he's desperate, he needs money, he's going to the one person that he thought would be, you know, the the sympathetic, uh, you know, uh, piggy bank to, to help him out on this occasion. But uh, she saw right through him and I think sometimes, um, you know, when it comes to personalities like that, you need someone in your life to kind of, Wake you up. Unfortunately, it didn't wake him up to the point where he, you know, stopped him in his tracks doing what he's doing. But I thought it was really interesting in that that scene, especially when it's placed in the movie, um really, I think, spoke to me as kind of like she's speaking on behalf of the audience but almost like a conduit for us. Did you, did you find that as well? When when do you have people actually saying that to you as well that she kind of played that role for for them as
1: a viewing experience? That's interesting. Um... That is very interesting. I, I you know, I, I never quite thought of her as the audience. I mean, I think that she definitely is expressing, I think you're right, and that she's expressing concerns that will be on a lot of audience members' minds. And I love that you had that feeling. Like, wake up people. You know, I actually always saw Ryan's character kind of as the like almost like the the tour guide, taking mm. you you know, as like the surrogate for the audience, um, kind of like the Greek choir in a way, asking the the questions that, that are on the audience's mind in terms of like getting us from from storyline to storyline and and also showing the stakes of what Jason's done. But um, yeah, I think she is a, a stand-in for us and and for, you know, the people who would be, you know, quick to be like, no, this is bullshit. And, you know, um, and I think Jackie plays that part so well because she just, you know, she, she has those piercing eyes and, she, uh, I'm such a fan of hers. I, I, I told other, uh, and I'm sure you've seen in other interviews, but I'm, I'm a huge Australian cinema fan. Walkabout was a film I saw when I was in sixth grade. Actually, they showed it at my school and I just remember being completely taken in uh, what is this film. And, you know, I had no idea who the director was, Nicholas Rogue. And I, you know, became very obsessed and interested And, and then, the picnic at hanging rock, you know, which my, that was my first time seeing her on screen favorite line. Um I love Peter Weir and um, you know, just the crisp direction of that movie and her performance. But um so I was so excited to be working with her. And I love her for Animal Kingdom and silver linings and all that too. But you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, Jackie Weir, you know, like, but this her history goes back like it's crazy, 50 plus years. And yeah. she's, she's a powerhouse. And you know, when we were filming that scene, with her and Tom and the other scene with her and Chantel, uh, I'm very proud of too. I think that scene kind of lands the the movie's plane, so to speak. But um, that scene with her and Tom was, it, it was pretty like, I was seeing these two forces of dynamite just going at it. And, um, you know, and that you're right though, because that scene, when you first see her, I think the first scene with her is about half an hour into the movie. And that's, that gives you a completely new lens. Yeah whole design of the film was to kind of by showing all these different perspectives like from really you know you think about ryan's looking at him you know the fbi just looking at, him at, a, at a fugitive a picture a silhouette he's got to catch and then you've got adina sees him as a love interest so he's kind of a romantic hero and then Chantel sees him changing from like an innocent boy to to the to who he is um and jackie sees him cold and crisp what he for what he is exactly and, and i
0: guess i guess the other character who's kind of similar to jackie's character is the sister-in-law uh paul shrader's wife she definitely kind of sees him for kind of what he is as well you know because she uh essentially makes sure that um paul Schrader's character who's the brother of um, tom's character has nothing to do with him like she doesn't want like she's pretty much puts her foot down it's like you're not going to hang out with this guy anymore
1: yeah, we had funny backstories for that character because she's in very little of the movie. But yeah, we were like, you know, what did he do? What did he possibly, like, could have been to? Yeah. But yeah, the sense senses he's trouble, you know. Yeah. Definitely trouble. Trouble
0: with a capital T. And um, still at large as well, which is just incredibly fascinating. There's so many different theories about where he could be. I think I was reading something about some, um, I think, the FBI thinking that he might have been embedded within the Mormon community now or or maybe um, he might be overseas. He had some. I think he did some time in Paris as part of the uh, the Jesus or um, um uh, Jesus of um Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints Church. He did some time. He could be over there. Who knows? I mean, it's funny. Like you know, a lot of people who were on at least like we talked about Whitey Whitey Bulger. He was found after not that not that long ago. Actually, maybe a few years back. And and you know, there's a possibility um, that it, maybe Jason could be fine as well. But.
1: Who knows? Yeah, he, was, he was down here in Los Angeles when he bolttered in like a parking lot in in yeah. Santa Monica it's just like you know you there's so that's the things like mean, we there's so much space in this world our country to hide I actually was reached out to fairly recently I want to say a month after the release and uh some guy wrote me and told me he knew Jason and he knew him after the murder after he disappeared he saw mm-hmm. him in Texas uh, at like a dick sporting goods and they became he didn't know who he was they became friends and then one day he just ghosted him and started leave- and left and then they ran into him in another part of Texas so I think for a good while he was in America um but there was a, a there was an apparent sighting in 2008 although they recently said there have been no confirmed sightings ever of him since he has been missing and they took him off the FBI's top 10 list uh three weeks before my movie came out Hmm. which find interesting i don't really know why they did that um but it's just yeah so you know i don't know what they think or if they think there's a shot of finding him if this is just going to be one of those db cooper things that's never answered um you know but it it is fascinating i wouldn't be surprised at anything honestly at this point If you said they found him at a store in oklahoma or if you said they found him in Australia, <laughs> if you know, they said they found. Actually, my my theory was Australia. We had theories in the speed of window where everyone wrote their theories, and I I thought Australia because I think there is a tendency for criminals to hide in both Australia and like Southeast Asia are kind of the big yeah. Or, or they're big kind of Australasian kind of territory, yeah, yeah. White blonde guy, you know, could do could do pretty well in Australia, I would think, but I don't know. <laughs> So, for everyone out there listening, American Murderer
0: hits uh, Australian screens on digital February 8th, um, available now in the States. Uh, is that correct? I'm both on like on um, Blu-ray, DVD, digital, Whoever out there for my um, listeners over there in, in North America. Um, I, it's a really fascinating story, it really is, about Jason Derrick Brown, you know, anything about him at all and intentionally noise watching movies How, kind of like i know you said dog day afternoon is a movie that really inspired you that's one of my favorite films as well along with um serpico actually i'm a, I'm a huge cindy lament fan so i'm sure you are so it's really fascinating to watch these uh, stories that we never heard of before come to life through the cinematic lens and and that's definitely what we see here with american murder as well and tom calfrey's excellent in it we talked about the cast also yeah porsche radar so I many. Um, great Kevin Corrigan's in it as well I uh, love watching Kevin and his movies um it's a it's a fantastic cast it's a really fascinating fascinating movie really well done with the non-linear kind of uh, linear structure of it as well it really kept you on your toes and um I gotta say that uh Matthew Gentil I gotta say thank you so much very much for your time today uh congratulations with the film um best of luck with your strain release and um yeah I'm going to have this podcast up today and have sure, make sure people know about it and go and watch it. And yeah, man, thank you so much for your time. And when that, that bank robbery film uh, gets up and running and ready to go, please hit me up again. I'd love to talk to you again, again uh, in the future.
1: Matt, ah, thank you. And you've got you've got me for all my movies. <laughs> <laughs>